Welcome, welcome to the Cube Command Podcast. My name is Tommy Savoya, and this is the show where you can chill while you listen to the news, reviews, and other things in the gaming, pop culture, and movie industry. Now, Nick couldn't make it to this episode, but we are joined by my good friend William Coldwell, who is the host of the 21st Rewrite, a screenplay analysis podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and available on many other podcasting apps. You can find his show on www.the21strewrite.com. That's T H E 21 S T R E W R I T E.com. And you can also find an episode that I joined him in where we analyze The Hobbit by Peter Jackson, which is an adaptation of the novel by J.R. Tolkien. We have William with us. And how are you doing, William? Hi, Tommy. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thanks for mentioning the Hobbit episode that we did, which I really enjoyed. I think we, we did a great breakdown of um, that story and Peter Jackson's specific take on it. it. It was really fun. Yeah, The Hobbit is just fresh with stuff to talk about and lore, and there's so many layers you can peel back with it. I had a great time in that episode, too. But today we're going to be going into a another big lore-infested world in Star Wars. And uh, I know I, I haven't done a lot of Star Wars stuff on this show um, for some reason, because I'm a huge Star Wars nut. So a while ago, Disney Disney released this little app called Disney+. Plus, and with it, one of their big flagship titles was The Mandalorian. Now, The Mandalorian is a spin-off show set in the Star Wars universe, and it's directed or run by Jon Favreau, who is, you know, you know him as the big wig of Marvel Studios. It's produced by Kathleen Kennedy, the president of Lucasfilm, Colin Wilson, and Dave Filoni of Star Wars The Clone Wars fame. Now, William, what is, what is your experience with Star Wars? What is, where do you come from in the Star Wars universe? I think like most people of, of my generation, I grew up watching Star Wars and the reboot of it with episode one, two, and three was something that took place in my childhood, so... Obviously, that was a huge thing. The The marketing push around it was enormous. Probably The Lord of the Rings was the only other film around that time that was doing the same level of marketing and trying to get uh, young people into cinemas. So obviously, I've seen all of those early films, saw them before the reboots, and then after the, um, the episode one, two, and three came out. However... I would say I'm not exactly a Star Wars fan. I've I've seen them, but I've never really got so far into it. So hopefully I'll be able to give you a, a different type of perspective, seeing seeing the Mandalorian from an outsider's perspective and kind of what works in terms of bringing new people. I think what we have to really keep in mind is what Disney Plus actually is. And it's an attempt by Disney... They're trying to be one of the biggest, biggest content creators on the planet. Yeah, it's it's a little scary just how how big of an influence Disney has. And uh, Nick and I actually did an episode um, on Disney Plus before, um, and we kind of went over what it has. And obviously, growing up with Disney, there's a lot of stuff we do enjoy on there. But it is um, a streaming service, so it's something that it's consistently costing money. You're consistently giving Disney money to have these things that were previously some of them unattainable um so 
uh, Disney Plus is essentially for those who don't know, um, it is the streaming app that includes anything that Disney has put out in basically forever. That spans the original Mickey Mouse shorts like Steamboat Willie, Donald Duck, Goofy, all the way to something as recent as The Mandalorian or uh, any new Star Wars movies they're pumping out. It's it's safe to say that. The influence is really widely reaching, and the purpose of The Mandalorian was to bring in new consumers, those who were still apprehensive about chucking Disney more money. Um, it was another another flag to wave and say, hey, we got this. Come here. What I think is going on with Disney Plus in particular is that it's it's trying to get into a space in the marketplace which is heavily dependent on either people buying it because they have young children. And this would be the easiest go-to compared to Netflix, compared to Hulu. If you've got young kids having Disney+, Plus, you know that all the entertainment on there is safe. But you also want to be trying to bring in the older viewers, the ones who are actually paying the subscription fee. So The Mandalorian is an attempt to basically harness nostalgia for the purpose of getting people to purchase a, a Disney Plus subscription. And I would say, before we even get to the end and have conclusions, I would say it's probably going to be very effective at doing that, as we've seen the reception to a character like the child, known as Baby Yoda, has been universally accepted by the mainstream culture and has got people talking about The Mandalorian. So already it's, and it's, it's hinging on this, this sense of nostalgia, which the Mandalorian looks like Boba Fett, a character everyone who is under the age of 50 remembers from those early Star Wars films. And then Baby Yoda, a continuation of the, the Yoda character who is so prominent in, in Star Wars. I can't go two seconds on like Twitter or Instagram without seeing a picture of Baby Yoda. It's it's actually insane the wide reach this character has. There's people that don't even care about Star Wars at all who still know who Baby Yoda is, and I think that's kind of ridiculous. But it's it's true that that from a marketing standpoint, this show was probably the most important thing for them at a certain point of time because. This app basically decides the future of where Disney content is going, um, especially since you've seen that uh, since the launch of the app, they've been pulling all of their content all of, off other stuff like HBO, Netflix, Hulu to put it here. This is the main hub of Disney stuff. And uh, because The Mandalorian was so important for marketing, they wanted to shove it everywhere. Basically, that's all you pretty much saw for the first like week or so of it. So I, I honestly don't think that Disney really knew what they were sitting on. And I think that became apparent when Christmas was coming up and they didn't actually have any Baby Yoda merchandise to sell. They really did not, they missed that window. This could have been the biggest toy, the biggest merchandise item of the year. And they blew it because they didn't actually know how much it was going to resonate. And that, I think that's quite interesting. Clearly certain people in Disney and, and Lucasfilm were passionate about this project and got it made. But presumably by this time next year, we're going to see Baby Yodas in every single person's house and, you know, stuffed toys, all kinds of memorabilia, merchandise, things like that. So, I think in a sense, this is kind of a good rep uh, representation of Star Wars because 
What has Star Wars been about? It's been about marketing merchandise toys. It's another example of what we've seen before. But it, you're right. It, there is plenty of passion going on, especially John Favreau. It, from the way it's shot, he knew, like, the way he presents the child and, like, the whole slew of puppeteers they had uh, uh, hired to make this this uh, this puppet. And apparently the cost uh, that it took to bring him into the show, uh, he knew what he was doing. And... Uh, not just from that standpoint, he he knew what he was doing from a storytelling perspective as well. Um, I, I don't mean like storytelling, like the pacing of the, the show, because we're going to get to that in just a second. But I mean, from telling a Star Wars, Star Wars E story, and uh, especially bringing on Dave Filoni, um, he knew that if there was one person to to help make this first live-action Star Wars show feel authentic, it had to be the guy who made the Clone Wars and Rebels. Um, because those are two very highly acclaimed shows that, while still being more directed toward a younger audience, it's there's still something in there that older audiences can find and appreciate because it respects the legacy of the previous movies so much. So one thing I was thinking about while preparing my thoughts for recording with you is actually just how the child harnesses what is so effective about the Star Wars franchise. What I was saying before, now it's the ones who enjoyed it as children who are older and have the money to buy the subscription and are the ones spending their time on social media as well. And many people of this age group also have children of their own now. So it's tying into this thing of seeking a return to childhood which is the basis of the nostalgia and then you're putting a child into the world this this creature that you can project onto all of that enjoyment of childhood and and so it's a very powerful psychological connection what they're doing there harnessing the power of nostalgia and then putting the child himself this because Yoda is a character that we are familiar with as being very aged he he dies he's he's very elderly he dies in during the course of the movies and so then you have this other creature of his species the child right at the very start of his life even though he's he's actually 50 years old he's still still a child i think that's that's really interesting just how we are we're not relating to the Mandalorian so much, I don't think, as as a group. I think it's it's really the focus is on the child. We, I mean, we don't even see the Mandalorian's face until like the last episode. So um, it's clear that they want to they want to create a reputation with the they want the character to kind of create his own like his own mythos while still contrasting him with the innocence of the child, which. Uh, is a good window into what the Star Wars universe tries to be a lot of the time, which it tries to be a source of a sense of wonder. I mean, you look at the original trilogy, um, a lot of the shots where they have big sweeping shots, the ship coming overhead and and the establishing shots of the planet where the ship kind of zooms in and goes in there. Um, and especially all the, all the, the effects, the practical effects, John Williams' score... It's always been about a sense of wonder and adventure, and I think The Mandalorian captures that sense of it very well 
Um, I'd say it captures the the atmosphere of the originals more than the prequels does in the sense that it's not focused on uh, politics or prophecies or or the dark side, light side stuff. It's it's more focused on this guy and his little little baby Yoda going on space adventures with a bigger plot kind of underlying everything. Yeah, it go, it uh, goes back to that almost campness that was in the 1970s versions and also the fact that we think of Star Wars now as this huge franchise and The Mandalorian clearly had a very decent budget but the original Star Wars was made with a very limited budget and in a very different technological era. And I really enjoy how they've actually harnessed the look of the 70s Star Wars to make The Mandalorian really feel like it belongs in that time and that place. And very very much a strong sense of continuity compared to, I agree, episode one, which felt like something very different. It was the first time that they had re-released, I think at that point, the, the original Star Wars with the improved CGI. Obviously, completely different having a character like Jar Jar Binks, who was entirely computer-generated, something that was just impossible uh, with the originals. Yeah, they have been going back to more practical effects, like with uh, Queel, uh, who was introduced in part one, uh, midway through part one. And I'm not entirely sure on IG-11. I think that was a mix of CGI and practical effects for these for the um, reverse shots when they're doing dialogue. But they, they, there is more of a focus on uh, making it feel like the original Star Wars um, because of its setting. So, okay, so I guess we should probably transition into the premise of the show itself. Um, the show is set on the outer reaches of the galaxy where the New Republic or the Empire doesn't really have any influence. Um, it's set a couple years after Episode Six, just for a window of reference. So it really it really doubles down on the the lawless setting, um, the sense that this guy is he has to be a lone warrior in this big dangerous galaxy where there's no one around to protect him. He's got to fend for himself against aliens and monsters and and people want to kill him. I see a lot of people um, referring to it as a samurai show where it's one guy having to basically fend for himself, as I said before. And I'd agree with that. It's more in the tradition of the the lone ranger, the the cowboy who rolls into town, that sense of lawlessness that existed in the Wild West. And what I think has happened is that it's no longer really acceptable to do westerns because there's too much historical baggage that goes with it. When you were filming a western in the 1950s, no one was offended by the fact that they were fighting Apache warriors, Native Americans, banditos from Mexico. And that just doesn't work in the modern, multicultural, diverse America. It it was in a different time and place. The Western existed in that sense. And it it's just too complicated to do that now. Most of the good Westerns that have come out, uh, the Revenant... Hostiles, for example, another great film. They're ones that actually deal with the legacy, deal with the concepts of genocide, and you can't have a fun adventure. You can't just have a cowboy transporting a child across 
across the wild west and being attacked by different uh, different races and cultures. So actually, it's a, it's a clever transposition of something that's always been an enjoyable type of story and then getting rid of all of the problematic elements in it. And then you just put it in space and it's you can't really offend anyone anymore. Right. That's I mean, that's a, a good description of what the Western is. And uh, I think it helps that they they paired him with uh, Baby Yoda. So you have that, that contrast, as I mentioned earlier. I want to say that I think when they, they first pitched a Star Wars show, I mean, there's so many possibilities just because of the setting of Star Wars. But I think what John Favreau was like, well, you know, why don't we make this grittier version of Star Wars? With Joker as well, obviously one of the most successful films of all time, breakout film of this year. The established universe is be- quickly becoming the only viable platform to to create an original series and have a huge amount of money thrown at you. Joaquin Phoenix has been doing films like Joker for a while. Uh, the Master, You Were Never Really Here, for example, but which is the one that was hugely commercially successful. It was, of course, the one that took place in the established DC universe. Right. And ironically enough, it exists in its own little little bubble, too. So they kind of get the best of both worlds, I suppose. But for Star Wars, they, they interconnect this um, with the... Because I think for Star Wars, they want to make sure everything is just part of a bigger picture, which I think, in my opinion, can get a little messy sometimes. Um, but I guess if... They're placing this all the way millions of light years away. It's it can it can stand on its own. Um, that's not to say they don't lean on nostalgia for plenty of things because they definitely do. Um, but I I think that they do a good job of interweaving it into the story and not exactly punching you in the face with it like the new movies do. They they let it kind of breathe its own life and interact with the the new stuff in a organic fashion. It circumvents the problem of sequels. You don't have any expectations. You're free to play around and say you were inspired by rather than having this next chapter, the canonical follow-up to beloved films. No one has any expectations on The Mandalorian the day it comes out. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But you don't have this legacy of, oh, you ruined the Star Wars franchise. That was the huge problem with the latest sequels was the fan reaction is always going to be based on the fact that they are looking for a great ending to something that they've enjoyed for so long. And when you see the reactions of fans to the ending of Lost or the ending of Game of Thrones and you think those series lasted about seven years each, compare that to Star Wars, which has been 40 years big expectations the mandalorian circumvents that problem it, it's no longer an issue of you're going to bring down the whole franchise if this doesn't work it's essentially and effectively a side story one of which is on a much smaller scale like the, the story itself is framed um to the point where there are definitely stakes arguably you care i i, I care about the stakes in this show more than i cared about it in the new movies um on a personal note but they do a good job of establishing the world early on and then they work into uh, developing the character himself developing his motivation and then they take a little bit with uh 
with fleshing them out a little bit. And what I mean by that is uh, this show goes in eight chapters, eight episodes. Kind of short, but it's okay. Because the first three are, are done to set up the premise of the show, three parts. Um, the next three episodes are kind of their own self-contained stories while still fleshing out the relationship between the child and the Mandalorian while the last two are is the conclusion. That was one um, of the most surprising things for me actually was seeing that it actually took on an episodic format in which they felt free to play around with the characters and put them in these these settings and tell a story that began with the minute one of that episode and essentially closed out when the credits rolled. And then the following week, the idea is, okay, it's a new story, the same characters. And what we're becoming more used to nowadays is is long-form drama, where every episode ties into the previous one. And it was interesting to see that they played around with the dynamic. With eight episodes, they had the space to do both things, I feel. They, they had the space to do episodes one and two, and episodes seven and eight are all quite clearly connected. And episode three as well, I'd say. Um, with episode eight being an extra, extra long kind of conclusion episode. Arguably some of the middle episodes, though, the, they certainly had the worst reception on Metacritic, for example, is a good indicator of how much people enjoyed certain episodes. And it did look like there was a bit of a dip between episodes five and six, for example, that fans weren't really responding that positively to it. Which is just something to keep in mind as well. For me, personally, the ending was the best, by far. Yeah, the ending was... I, I liked how they ended it. It opened. It kept it open-ended for a continuation while still satisfyingly concluding what they had set up before. As far as my personal favorite goes, I... I think I like chapter three the most, mostly because it completes the setup of the Mandalorian, because that's right after chapter three. Um, it goes into the, the sanctuary, which is where he meets uh, Cara Dune, who's the former rebel trooper. That is when they started doing the self-contained stories, which I I was okay with. They're all fun episodes. Um, I just I I didn't like how they had kind of essentially for three episodes abandoned the the um the whole plot line with the stormtroopers or the um the collector uh with the stormtroopers but um i was fine with it because it still provided an entertaining episode and still put the characters in engaging situations i do think that that chapter three was probably one of the best ones because um that's when you you finally realize what the Mandalorian's uh, moral compass is and what his morality really stands at. Because in the first two episodes, you see him, like, not exactly murdering people, but he's he's kind of ruthless. He's kind of not a fun guy to be around for the first two episodes. Um, and when he meets the child and the child saves his life against the, um, I forgot what they called it, a mudhorn, he kind of, something in him changes. And you can see that develop throughout between episodes two and three and three is when he makes the decision okay i gotta i gotta forget about what i want i gotta go save this kid and that's what he does yeah actually they refer to that i think in the concluding chapter that 
when he's trying to summarize what had happened to the armorer, he, she asks, is it an enemy? And he says it was. That all becomes apparent with the context. By the end, we've, we've got the whole context. And from a screenwriting perspective, what's interesting about why, probably why you think chapter three is the best one is because that's what is usually referred to in the, in the character arc or the, the hero's journey. This is the the section where he actually refuses the call. That's when he, he gives the child up to Werner Herzog's uh, character and then goes and takes him back, and that's the acceptance of the call. That's essentially the the end of Act 1 in, in most stories. And actually, you'll, you'll see that Star Wars is the original, Episode 4, is heavily based on the hero's journey model. George Lucas was enormously influenced by it wanted to write a sci-fi that was specifically hero's journey and that's why you'll see a lot of parallels because the mandalorian itself has a very clear hero's journey structure as well which mimics that original uh star wars as well uh one of the interesting things about it though of course is that the the wonder that you were mentioning the the fact that one of the things we love about this this universe is that it can always offer surprise and and wonder it's seeing that through the child's eyes when the child himself is learning that he has powers in a way that Luke had to discover in in the first Star Wars as well it's the extent to which this actually is real what what is going on and when he's using the force to levitate this mud horn, that's a magic moment, I think, for everyone. Yeah, it was definitely the first time you're like, okay, they're actually doing this in the show because in the the first uh, the first chapter, it's set in I don't know this ice planet, and he's just he's doing bounty hunter things. Um, if you've seen any of the the previous um, episodes of the Clone Wars or the first or stuff with Jango Fett or Boba Fett. I mean, it's, he's doing pretty standard Mandalorian bounty hunter stuff. And once he meets the child and you see it's, uh, it's a Yoda and it levitates the mud horn, you're like, it, the scope of what the show is trying to do kind of changes. It goes in this other, see a left turn right there, but a good left turn because you're like, okay, they're putting force powers in here and they're keeping that sense of wonder that was consistent throughout the original trilogy. It's not going to be something that feels like it, it could be disconnected from the larger Star Wars. To talk about episode one a bit more as well in terms of, again, I'm a writer. My podcast is all about screenwriting. The parts of The Mandalorian I most struggled with tended to be on that side. Honestly, when the, the credits roll on the first episode and you see all of the concept art and the music is, is at its peak, I was enraptured by it, and I, I could see the care that was going into it as a project. And there's a couple of things that are going on that were bothering me right at the start. And one of them is, is presumably because they know that it's aimed at a younger audience. I think they felt a bit more free to play around with cliché, and some of the clichés were getting a bit on my nerves in the sense that the, the show felt a bit predictable in, in terms of story. And the other thing was the expositional dialogue, which is something that most writers 
try to avoid or aware that they should be trying to avoid that. That's when a character simply states all of their history and their objectives out loud for everyone to hear. And you're clearly talking to the audience because all of the characters should know this this information. And um, the expositional dialogue was was quite problematic in in those early episodes. And then as the show progressed and we've got the information, whether it was given to us in in the problematic way of expositional dialogue or any other way, we've got the information and then we can just roll with it. And so those last two episodes, seven and eight, they didn't need to do any of that stuff. Any new information was a revelation, such as when Moff Gideon, which is the character played by Giancarlo Esposito, who was absolutely phenomenal in in his role. I, I think he gave the best performance of the the entire eight-episode arc. When he reveals he knows the Mandalorian's real name is Din Djarin, that kind of stuff, when, when that comes out, it was really, really effective. So just early on, I was struggling a little bit with it, and it was once, once it had found its footing that the show really worked for me. Uh, so some of those earlier episodes were a bit clunky, and I, I especially thought the Sanctuary episode, number four, was, was very clunky in terms of leaning on on some very well-known cliches. But then again, like I said, this is a Disney Plus show. It's not meant to be perhaps aimed at someone who watches is, is 30 years old and watches lots of foreign cinema. It's, it's meant to be mass entertainment. And so once it had kind of found its footing, it was really enjoyable. Yeah, the, the pacing is a slow burn. I think, um, like I said, yeah, after my favorite episode, chapter three, going from that to chapter four, the sanctuary was a little, a little, a little rocky because they have different directors on each episode. So it's, it's kind of understandable that each one would be kind of having a different feel in each one. I noticed, I did notice in chapter four and kind of with chapter five, uh, as well is they felt like episodes of the clone wars. Chapter four felt like an episode of Rebels, and those two are those two shows. While good shows, I think they rely on cliches a lot, um, especially the training the village to fight against the oppressors. That there was an there's an exact story arc in the Clone Wars show that does the same exact thing, except it does it with Obi Wan and Anakin. I was a little taken out by that. Yeah, that's something that. Going back to the thing I said about Westerns and how difficult it is to make a Western nowadays, the problem with depoliticizing these events and taking it out of the human scope is that it actually reduces everything to a simple good and evil. And of course, that, that's always been the premise of Star Wars. The Force can be wielded for good, and you're a Jedi, or bad, and you're a Sith. There's always been this strong division of right and wrong, good and evil. The problem with the Sanctuary episode was it just went it went way too far to, into this world of everyone idyllically living among nature. And then, of course, these raiders coming with their, their big bad machine to come and attack them. And it just didn't, it didn't seem to make any sense almost that in such a technologically 
evolved universe. Okay, sure, you've got the you'll have some areas that are economically struggling more than others, but the the community that he he stays among um, on this planet Sorgan, they have droids, and yet they haven't seemed to <laughs> mechanize certain parts of their lifestyle that would just make things easier for them. So it it was just kind of an odd thing because it it often seems that with the first thing we do when we have technology is we basically start fixing problems. We start figuring out, okay, well, this part of life is tough and this part isn't, and so we'll use the technology to make things easier for ourselves. And so it was just kind of an odd kind of look back to this peaceful, idyllic golden age where everyone went fishing for, I think they're sifting in the water for, for prawns or, or shrimp. And it it just felt very odd. But Luckily, the story that was told against that background, which was not only him meeting Kara, but also having to make that decision of whether he would leave the child in the village, the perfect place on paper for him, or take him with him. And after after assassins come to kill the child, it, it shows that commitment to the child. So the actual storyline that was told over the course of that episode was quite good in terms of us starting to understand the relationship between the Mandalorian and the child. It was a good test of his faith. But um, actually, you did mention something um, of when the, they're fighting the... Uh, they, they're not, like, mechanizing anything. Did bring to mind that I have a couple problems with how the show sometimes... Not all the time, but just sometimes in certain situations frames its action pieces for the sake of story. These people were using guns for the first time and fighting down uh, ATST, which was is supposed to be this giant hulking piece of metal. I mean, and no one died in that sequence except for the bad guys, as far as I can remember. And it it you got to remember it's a Disney show. <laughs> one of the best things was actually in that last episode. The opening is the two stormtroopers who have captured the child, and. One of them takes out a gun and is just shooting at a bit of shrapnel, or a tin can or something that's on the ground and keeps missing. And I thought that was a very wonderful <laughs> self-referencing of just how bad stormtroopers seem to be at shooting people in the entirety of the Star Wars universe. The fact that they can't hit this this tin can that's 10 foot away from them, I, th- I think that was quite quite a good little nod towards just how ridiculous it is that... Uh, consistently, main characters never get never get hit by by the ray guns, and that I mean, the Mandalorian does get hit a lot, but he's wearing a, a type of armor that protects him. But everyone else around him tends to get through all the battles without too much of a an issue. Yeah, uh, I think Grief Karga and Kara Doom they they don't wear any armor, yet they jump into the same exact battlefield as the Mandalorian. They're fine. Mandalorian is the one who ends up getting burnt to a crisp, essentially, and has to get healed by IG-11. The the episode 8, or the transition between episode 7 and 8, I was actually questioning the whole, the, the setup they were in is, uh, maybe I missed a piece of dialogue that Moff Gideon said, um, but I wasn't exactly aware why Moff Gideon was like, I'll give you one day to to walk out with a child or else I fire on you. I mean, he's got him right where he wants him. 
I don't, I don't, I just, I, that's just one thing that was really bothering me. It was like, why did he give them one day to wait? Just for the sake of them figuring out a plan. It seemed to be that he was playing some sort of psychological game in order to capture them alive. Uh, Kara refers to some sort of torture that they have planned for ex-rebels. Grief Karga says to her, essentially, that, that it's not real. It was just propaganda. But there is a sense that Moff Gideon wants to capture them alive for whatever reason. And that he is playing some sort of psychological game with them. There are a lot of plot holes in, in The Mandalorian. And yet they've also clearly taken a lot of care in making sure it fits into the established Star Wars universe. I think it's a valiant effort, essentially. There's points where I've found it tough to watch There's and just problematic issues with with the writing and, and some of the the story uh, ideas, as we were just mentioning, but often it just doesn't matter when when there's the, the big moments, especially the ones that you'll see in the concept art at the end, and you you just remember, oh yeah, the, the time they fought the ATST and it's bearing down on them. And when you see the concept art of it and you think about how how the John Favreau and the rest of the team must have been thinking about how they were going to turn these ideas into reality. You just have to hand it to them that they did make something that is is very iconic and very memorable and often is very enjoyable. I mean, yeah, that that is true that they, the action set pieces are great. Um, yeah, what I was mentioning was just one thing that was kind of bothered me because I, I apparently had missed that line of dialogue but i mean aside from that the set pieces they use um are good i i don't have a problem with the rest of how the conclusion played out i think the the sacrifice of ig11 and quill makes sense from a narrative perspective because you have you got to kill the mentor it's just kind of you know it, <laughs> it, it raises the stakes because the mentor doesn't have a character arc. Yep, um, that's that's Obi Wan in the in the original as well. Exactly, and I mean it hurts to see Quill on the ground dead um, because he said Nick Nolte did a great job with the voice acting for Quill and the puppet the puppeteering with with Quill was it was top notch. It there was a point in time I I was watching with my dad and he was like, is that a puppet or is that a uh, CG effect, and I'm like, that's that's a puppet, Dad. And he's like, that's not a puppet. But um, the characters themselves, they, you, you care for them, you know. It, you have an attachment to the characters, each and every one of them. Um, so the the big emotional punch when Quill dies uh, is a great cliffhanger uh, at the end of Episode Seven. That's the all is lost moment, as you mentioned, killing the mentor. Usually a very effective technique in in story writing as well gives us another reason to root for the mandalorian essentially that's what we did have to wait for as you mentioned it's it's a slow burn in that sense early on we need reasons to root for the mandalorian we need to believe he's a good guy and that we want to support him and follow him on this journey and it's once he's willing to to risk his own life to save the child and he, t- he takes that role of adoptive father that's when we're able to to truly 
I think, engage with, with him and, and want to see him succeed. And now we actually know the stakes for the second series, the second season is going to be, are, are they going to return the child back to some sort of home planet where there's others of his species? Or will the Mandalorian have to raise him as a Mandalorian and continue the creed? And the most powerful being in the universe uh, from his toddler years to being uh, a super bounty hunter. You know, uh, yeah, before we get to the next point, actually, that's that's a that's a... Actually, a question I had is, like, how long can the Mandalorian train him before he dies? Because Baby Yoda doesn't age very quickly. This is something that the the show is going to have to figure out, how it's going to fit into the the full Star Wars universe. But, uh, yes, he's 50 years old. Presumably, he's older than the Mandalorian himself. The Mandalorian's lifespan is not going to be... I mean, it might not be that long living the kind of lifestyle he lives. <laughs> Presumably, he can live to about 80 or 90. And so he's going to age in a way that's just not going to relate to to the child. They really did. They closed off the arc, arguably two arcs, because he did have that stigma against droids that was resolved when the big sacrificial moment of episode eight was IG-11 self-destructing so they could get through the uh the sewage or the molten lava it was an exit that the sewers led out to then into molten lava oh right. okay yeah that's right they didn't immediately they can't like jump into molten lava but the, the the last action set piece is uh versus a tie fighter that's being piloted by moff gideon and i, I think i love how they shot this because you see uh the original uh the, the original movies. TIE Fighters are the most disposable uh, aircraft in Star Wars. They're the stormtroopers, but they fly. You know, those things have blown up every single scene in Star Wars. But when you're on the ground, and there's not a lot of you, you're on the ground against a TIE Fighter, it becomes the biggest threat to you. And it's probably one of the biggest threats so far introduced in The Mandalorian. I think it was brilliant how they did that. What you have with these big kind of war epics is you you lose the sense of perspective. You can see a spaceship being blown up and thousands of lives are lost and it's just an explosion. And when you are down on the ground with the characters that you care about, it it takes on a completely different meaning and you see the power of mechanized weaponry in a completely different way. With Star Wars, we tended to see the bigger action. We've seen loads of X-Wings going up against loads of TIE fighters and things like that. Although occasionally we have seen, we saw, I believe Darth Vader did pilot a, a TIE fighter at one point. And so I think Moff Gideon carried on in that tradition. He is essentially the closest we have to Darth Vader in this series, at least. He wears a similar uniform, a black Imperial uniform. IG-11, I think he, he takes on the role that CP-3 took on in the originals as well. Quill, quite clearly, I think, um, taking on Obi-Wan's role. And probably Kara is in a similar role to Princess Leia, but a bit more uh, 20, 2010s or 2020s, as we're, we're going into now. Uh, very, very much more empowered woman, uh, able to take on 
stronger, bigger, tougher enemies in hand-to-hand combat and just take them down. Just a, a very different kind of take on something that was kind of... It was in the originals in, in that old kind of more gendered view of things. You know, Princess Leia has to be saved from, from Jabba the Hutt, that kind of thing. So now we've got we've got a better kind of someone who has a lot more decision making and agency and ability to live their own life, and then they go along with the story in order to share in the same objective as the the Mandalorian, which is to help help this child. Yeah, I would actually. Um, I'd argue that that uh, Cara Dune is also has a little bit of Han Solo in her as well, because um, she initially refused to to follow along with the Mandalorian. And then later agrees to join him to save the child. Um, but I do like how you, you made those parallels. That's actually not something that was on the front end of my mind when watching this is how well they fit into the uh, same archetypes, um, character roles that were introduced in the original trilogy. Yep, that's what's so effective about this. It's It's the understanding of powerful archetypes exactly as you said uh the basic elements of telling story and the fact that this was a heavy emphasis in the original star wars george lucas specifically set out to use the hero's journey model which had been adapted from the work of joseph campbell and tell a story with that model and they're continuing that so of course we're going to see similar characters appearing time and time again and then I, w- one thing I do think is brilliant about The Mandalorian, though, is this inclusion of these side characters who we might never see again. Bill Burr and especially Richard Iowadi as uh, Zero, the droid. I think these characters have been wonderful. They've added a lot of life to that universe in, because we're on such a different social level compared to Star Wars. Star Wars is all about essentially the elites of that world. They're the princes and, and princesses. They're, they are the high-ups in the Empire. And and all of these... Being a Jedi is clearly a very rare and prestigious thing. And yet the, the clear storyline in, in Star Wars is all about the Jedi. And yet in The Mandalorian, when when they talk about the child using the Force... They can barely even believe it even exists. They don't. They don't even actually know the name of the Force. They just say, "Oh, I've heard of people with these powers." We're so used to knowing about Jedi's and 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 Sith and following those stories. I think uh, a lot of it has to be owed to the setting, um, because besides Tatooine, mostly what we've seen in uh, the original uh, Star Wars and the prequels was you know, the big guys, you know, the, uh, like you said, the higher up, this takes place, I think like right at, like immediately after Luke turns Darth Vader back and they overthrow the emperor. Um, so it's, it, it does make sense why the force is such a, a unknown realm, um, especially to the outer reaches, because I don't think they even have gotten word that the empire has fallen because those ripples haven't even spread to that part of the galaxy yet. You're able to still have stormtroopers and the moths like uh, Moff Gideon uh, still having an influence in the story. And uh, the Jedi having a, a big grand significance of the story has still got a grasp on the Mandalorian too. Because 
Um, the big shocking moment of the last scene in episode eight is Moff Gideon whipping out that dark saber and cutting through the Tie Fighter to create some suspense for season two. Here's a question that probably you can answer, knowing more about Star Wars than I do. But is the fact he has a lightsaber proof that he is a Sith? Well, you don't necessarily have to be um, a Jedi or a Sith to wield it, because I think uh, in Episode Five, uh, Han uses the lightsaber to cut open a Tauntaun. But the significance of the dark saber, I think, what they're implying is that um, Moff Gideon still has a tremendous amount of influence over uh, Din Djarin. I'm not like super familiar with the dark saber. I know I, I watched the couple episodes that I was introduced in the Clone Wars. It's the weapon of the first Mandalorian Jedi who was inducted in the Jedi Order. And after he died, he put his lightsaber he made in his castle or his palace or something. Um, and over over the years, as the the planet of Mandalore is under constant civil wars and wars between other planets, the sword has kind of been stolen and it's changed holders throughout the, the decades. So I think Moff Gideon is the latest person who kind of took it for himself. So he it, it still has a way to tie him to Mandalore's history. And it's a way to drag in the audience, drag the audience back in saying, OK, I got to find out how he's got this thing with him. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, Thanks for explaining that. Oh, yeah, no problem. It's, it's played as the, the big wow moment. I don't even think the Mandalorian even knows he has this or what it is. That's probably the, what, like, I'm, I'm guessing that's the direction they're going to go. They're going to keep Moff Gideon as the main antagonist. And there's going to be something going on. You already know the Mandalorian is probably going to end up using the Darksaber. Because that's a great thing to put in trailers. But it's it's something that did intrigue me. I'll say that much. What were, you, what were your thoughts seeing? Did you, like... Where you're like, oh, okay, they're they're connected to the movies, or okay, this is kind of a cool twist. I think it was quite clearly establishing that Moff Gideon survived, that he's still going to be a threat for for the next season, that he has some sort of higher power or status that he's able to to wield. He's clearly going to be much more than we already know about him, and this is actually the opposite of what I was saying before. This is the opposite of expositional dialogue. No one is telling us his whole life story and why he's such an effective enemy. You can do this purely visually. Just having someone survive this horrible crash and then cut themselves out with this super weapon and then stand there. That, it's a visual storytelling. That's, that's what uh, scripts are designed for is to... You write them so that they can be put on the screen and you tell a story visually. And you should never forget just how effective visual imagery actually is in telling stories. To give a good example of it earlier on in The Mandalorian are the short flashbacks to The Mandalorian as a child without actually revealing what happened to him until the final episode just kind of foreshadowing without any actual explanation, we start to understand that something must have happened to his his planet when he was a kid. And it just is gradually revealed to us over time and, until we get the full flashback right at the very end. Right, it's got that aha moment. It's like, I, okay, I understand how he's in the Mandalorian cult or 
I think they're they explained as a religion uh, based around weapons. It's following a, a way of life. It's following a, a belief system, but not necessarily something that is, is more about a code or, or ethics that they, they have to follow. Because this is the way. This is the way. Sorry. <laughs> that was a, a cliche that certainly got on my nerves. Um, in that first episode where the the Mandalorian uh, creed is revealed and the armorer keeps saying that. Kind of different to uh, Quills, actually. I, I quite enjoyed Quills' constant repetition of... Um, I have spoken? I have spoken. Yes. <laughs> Did he do like a he did like a hand he did like the Spock hand thing didn't he whenever he like said it he always like put his hand up because it simply just dismissed everyone around him. <laughs> <laughs> well, he clearly has like like when he's interacting with other characters, he clearly has influence in the conversation because they see he's wise and they want to listen to what he has to say. Power stance, um, if that's the right word for it, is very important in the show um, because all. The characters are very um, warrior-esque. They're very, like, uh, strong. Having power over one another in this lawless galaxy is the only way they can survive. Um, And I think it's important that, like, the last shot we see of uh, Moff Gideon is him still holding his head up, standing on top of the TIE fighter, telling you he's not down yet. Like you said, the visual storytelling. There are times in, like, other media where you see the the main antagonist, they take him down. But they want to keep using the main antagonist for other stuff but they make them crazy or something, or they, they take them down a peg while still keeping them as the antagonist. I don't know. I just wanted to mention that. That was, I kind of like how they, they had the character still keep his sense of presence in a way. Yeah, I'm, I would hope that for season two, they, they follow a similar pattern to what's been laid out in the first one, which is to get a bit of a continuation after the big cliffhanger has been left and essentially the Mandalorian's been leveled up. In, in a sense, he's now got a jetpack and he's got better armor now than, than when the, the show started and and this, this uh, gang of characters that's going to support him. I presume that Taika Waititi's character will come back as a different IG droid. I think that's quite likely. Because that's the thing about droids, is you can just basically replicate them. Then presumably somewhere in the middle of Series 2, they will take a bit of time to tell a few more episodic stories and then have a conclusion over the last two again. So we'll we'll see how they go, but I think it's a good template for what they can use. And I think some of the early stumbling blocks that they encountered... They've created a completely different show. So, of course, there were going to be a few issues that needed ironing out right at the beginning. And we often see this with shows that they actually tend to get better as time goes on because the audience is so familiar with the characters, they don't need things explained to them anymore. Right. Yeah, the the character familiarity is important because people want to see, they want to see Baby Yoda and they want to see The Mandalorian back at it again in season two. Um I was a little disappointed at the the end where um, Cara Dune and uh, Grief Karga, um, they essentially told him, go do your thing, but we got to stay here. Because I, I thought they had a really good thing going with the whole, the, the cast and how they interact and the banter and the the different things each one hold, does can do a different thing. I like the dynamic 
but I, it's not impossible they could just bring them back, like, right some way plot-wise that they, they'll end up crossing paths with the Mandalorian again. But I think they were probably implying that they're going to have new side characters. I don't think they... I don't think there's been an official statement by Jon Favreau, but I... I kind of that's where I thought they were they were insinuating because they want to keep this as their flagship their flagship Star Wars show um that kind of represents different parts of the galaxy I can assume again that's just speculation though I mean for this oh. first series they've already had Carl Weathers, Werner Herzog, Nick Nolte, Taika Waititi, Bill Burr Giancarlo Esposito. These are big names. These are these are people who are familiar on television screens, and so presumably they will be able to get some guest stars in of an even higher caliber for for the next round. Now that this is established, everyone's talking about it. The Baby Yoda memes are everywhere. I th- I think they're going to have a lot of um, celebrities lining up wanting to be in this show now. It definitely created a a big kind of wave of of Mandalorian news and press, especially having a bigger budget um, in season two due to its success is going to have a big influence on where they take it in the future. And uh, personally, I am excited to see what's going to happen. I'll be honest, there's not much really uh, keeping me subscribed to Disney Plus right now. I'm not really using it that much. Uh, I'll watch like an occasional Simpsons episode here or there. But um as a whole, I'm not really using it that much, but when season two rolls around, it's it's like, well, I mean, you got to see the story continue, and that's how, and that's that's why they're keeping it afloat. That is going to be the weakness of of Disney Plus. Is essentially, it will always be better catered for people with younger family members, and if you don't have that. What are you going to pick? Are you going to pick Netflix, Hulu, HBO, Disney? It It's always going to be a tough sell, I think. And people will be aware that if there's only one show like The Mandalorian, they can watch it at a friend's house. It's not going to take too long if, if that's the only show you're going to watch. But then again, most streaming services turned, started out that way. Netflix started out with Orange is the New Black was their show. And they rapidly expanded. And Disney already is miles ahead of Netflix in terms of feature film, plus all the acquisitions that they've made recently. HBO is going to be playing catch up, but they've always they've always had really good quality television. And then Hulu is the one that's probably at most risk of losing out, and people will vote with their wallets and you you really do have to pick probably one or two is is going to be most households maximums uh, especially as people also have subscriptions to Spotify and and other things going on as well it's probably just going to be picking one or two that the most content is available on yeah having so many uh subscription services is definitely not in the best interest of the consumer i had to pick and choose uh i i wasn't using my hulu so i dropped hulu Kind of kicking myself now because apparently they're going to have uh, Orville. Uh, they're going to re- put Orville on Hulu and and My Hero Academia and stuff. And Disney Plus is the only place you can get a lot of a lot of their stuff, so that's their big selling point. But we'll have to see in the future what 
what the future holds in store for not just the Mandalorian, but Disney Plus as an app, as an application. But yeah, that was our review of The Mandalorian Season 1, which you can find on the streaming app Disney Plus. So I want to thank all you guys for watching, and I'd like to thank William for joining us on this episode, this very fun episode. Uh, William, why don't you, why don't you tell them where they can uh, find your show? Sure, yeah. Um, the 21st Rewrite is available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and a bunch of other platforms. It's every two weeks we analyze a famous feature film screenplay from the 21st century. And so it's actually been quite enjoyable this week to not be doing a film and to take on an episodic TV show instead. But what we focus on is is film and the process of writing for film. And very recently, we've had more guests on. So we've had Mark Herman, the director and writer of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and also Glenn Patterson, the, the writer of Good Vibrations. Those episodes will be coming up in, in the next couple of months. And then a big announcement coming up is that I'll be recording an episode with one of the writers of Black Klansman which won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay in 2017. So when that one is posted, I really hope a lot of listeners tune in for that and to, to hear his uh, story about how he, how he adapted that for the screen because it's, it's a really great screenplay. It's a, it's a real privilege to be able to talk to someone who has written such a, an iconic uh, work. That's incredible, actually. Wow. That's I'm actually excited to to listen to that one because I haven't had the chance to see that movie, but it's some it is something that intrigued me that I've been kind of waiting for a chance to to see it. That's right. You can find the twenty first rewrite on any great podcast app, including Apple Podcast and Podbean. Um, and also, you can check out the episode that I guested on where we talked about The Hobbit, which is a film by Peter Jackson, who adapted the first half of the book. The Hobbit, written by J.R.R. Tolkien, and we dissected that movie to the moon and back. Yep, if you're a huge Tommy Savoy fan, I'd say that's the best <laughs> place to start with the 21st rewrite. But otherwise, you can also look through our catalog of, of back episodes. The show's been going for a year now, so we, we have a decent collection. I'm sure there'll be at least one film that you're familiar with and enjoy and would like to learn more about. All right, and if you are a big Tommy Savoy fan, you can listen to me on the Cube Command podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any great podcast app. You can also visit our website, www.cubecommand.com, to find the latest news on the show. And you can also find us on Twitch, twitch.tv slash cubecommand, where you can watch us play games. And don't forget that the Cube Command podcast is a proud member of the Tech Podcast Network. If it's tech, it's here. Listen to the Cube Command podcast and other great shows by going to www.techpodcasts.com. So my name is Tommy Savoya. And I'm William Coldwell. This has been the Cube Command podcast. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next time. Nick, have you ever heard of Blueberry? Blueberry, what's that?
Well, it's only one of the most respected media hosting sites out there with a customizable audio player, media validation, and unlimited downloads. Wow, does it have free technical support? Yes. Is it optimized to work with WordPress for easy blog posts? Yes. Does it require third-party sites to access? No. Is it spelled with a B and an L and a U and a B-R-R-Y? Yes. With affordable hosting packages and detailed statistics, Blueberry must be the best podcast hosting service for me. Yeah, well, wait a second. How'd you know that? I, I didn't say that. I don't know. What are, you, what are you talking about? Use our promo code CUBECOMMAND to get your first month of hosting free. Thank you for listening.